Hi, guys. Welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. You know that this is not a typical, uh, straightforward show. I always have, have very, very beautiful guests from all walks of life and from all, from all areas of the world. And, and it is beautiful because we all go through trauma and we all go through so much, so much crap in our life. Oh, my goodness. So it is, therefore, there are so many stories out there to be told. But some of these stories are special. And tonight is indeed a very special time for me because I've got the honor of having Rena Quint with me. Rena is a woman, is a very special woman because she is a woman who was moving towards the light at a time when darkness was so profound that many people can't even imagine that. So I've got today a guest who is a woman who truly has, who is, who is the daughter of many mothers. And that is a beautiful thing to say. And I let, I let Rena tell us more about this title, The Daughter of Many Mothers. Rena, welcome to my show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I've never been on a show quite like this. The title <laughs> of my book is The Daughter of Many Mothers. And the reason, <laughs> not that many people can say that they've had six mothers, but I was born and I found my birth certificate so I can really say I was born after many, many years of not knowing my birthday. I was born in Poland to a wonderful mother, I imagine, but I only had her for a few years. And then she and my brothers were taken off to Treblinka and we were brought into the synagogue and then people were taken out. Somehow or other, I managed to escape, which I will tell you later. And a man took me back to my father and my father was working in a man's camp. So I became a man, but then he was taken away. So another woman who was a school teacher became my new mother. When she somehow disappeared because all these people disappeared either because she was shot or because she fell down dead or because she was I don't know what but she disappeared somebody else and then I was taken to a different camp finally wound up in Bergen-Belsen which is a terrible concentration camp in Germany I met somebody else she again everybody kept on disappearing after the war I wound up in Sweden where a woman who had a son and daughter, her brother had gone to the United States and he sent her tickets to come for the three of them to come to the United States. Somebody had to sponsor you and she got all the proper papers and her daughter died. When her daughter died, it was my luck. And she asked me if I wanted to go with her to the United States. I was going to go to Palestine, which thank God now is Israel. Um, with all the other orphans. And I was told my mother and father were there. I did not know that they were dead at that point. I got her daughter's name, her birthday, her mother, the place she was born. I became that child and I had a new mother. And we came to the United States and everything was very, very good for a while, but then she died. She had been so badly treated in, in the camps. And a lot of people died after the war. 
And then I was adopted by an American family, and they were my family for many, many years, and they gave me a wonderful life. In between, I may have had other people, but I believe that each one of these people who saved me was like an angel sent by God, because each one disappeared, but I could not have been saved without them. What a story. And if some of you are confused, because if you if you don't know your history as well as, as Rena and I do, we are talking about 1935, or was it 1936? What is your real I birthday? I don't know. You don't know. My real, <laughs> birthday, my real birthday I found out was 35. 35. But the birthday I go by was 36. Oh, there you so go. So you can choose. You can choose. <laughs> okay. Well, that was... That, that that beautiful day when you came to uh, to this earth, um, that was just three years before my ancestors invaded Poland and started the most brutal destruction of a country and with the view of two years later invading further east into Russia and creating a nightmare for the world. I mean, something that that we that I still cannot fathom how a civilized country, a country that was deemed high up in 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 the recognition, cultured, civilized, educated, beautiful, correct, correct, and that's what you write in your book, and that's so amazing because you say all that, uh, yet here we were, my ancestors were going into your country and killing every Jew they could possibly get their hands Poland. on. Yeah, Poland. Ab absolutely, absolutely, in Poland. And it was very clear and, and regret, not regrettably, the, the fact is that there was a non-aggression pact just between Russia and, and uh, Germany just the month before they invaded. And they had divvied up Poland. So the Germans came from the West, the Russians from the East, And everyone did exactly the same thing. They completely annihilated Poland. And we Now, the central government was on the one side, one part, one third went to Russia, one third went to Germany, mm. and the central government stayed in Poland. Right. And that was where we lived. So at that time, Can you remember anything from that time? Because you would have just been very, very young. This would have I was been about three, three and a half years that's old. That's right. That's right. So, and it, there were very few memories in that time, and wasn't very it? few. But I put many of them together. Mm. There's certain things that I do remember. I remember being with with my mother and, and brothers outside, and all of a sudden bombs started falling. People knew that a war was coming. I didn't. But people knew that a war was coming. And uh, when the bombs started and then the uh, Germans came in with their boots and their uniforms and their um, motorcycles and people started running away. Some people who had money ran to Russia. Some people went to other towns. My mother took my brothers and me down to the cellar which was waiting for us. They had put potatoes and, and other, um, just uh, food there, just in case there would be something like that. And um, once the war started, the Polish army was not ready for the German occupation mm. and war started in full. And then the Pietrakov, the city I came from, became the first ghetto. And they walled in with barbed wire a certain area of the city 
and that became the ghetto. And that's where all the Jews had to live. If anybody lived outside of that section, they had to move in. And any Christian who lived in that section moved out. But of course, they had so many apartments to choose from. Whereas the people in the ghetto had to find a place to live. So sometimes an apartment, even my apartment, which was really very nice, I've been back there, had four and five and six families moving in. And there wasn't enough food. People were dying of starvation. There wasn't enough heat. And Poland is a very cold country. And this was in December that uh, the, the war, when the war first started. And, um, and, and people were dying of, of illnesses. There was no medicine. There was no heat. There was no food. There were no doctors. And there was just a lot of death and poverty, misery. And we, we did that on purpose. This is not by accident. This was not an oversight of the German army that they suddenly conquered the country and actually fought out them. We don't have the supply lines to no, now No, after that, they conquered, they conquered France, they conquered Yugoslavia, they conquered all of Europe. Absolutely. And we didn't see that happening there, or to a much lesser degree, let's put it like that. So, yes, you're right. And this is, this is a shame that will forever lie on my country. Uh, and there's no two ways around that. What I find amazing is the tenacity with which you hung onto life. It is the, the, there was a will in you that sort of floats through that book where, where you really feel, no, you were, you were born survivor sounds so cliche, sounds so stupid, but somehow you managed to survive. I think it's very nice of you to say that, but I'm not sure that I managed. I think people helped me manage. Right. And I believe that God helped me manage. As a Beautiful. child of three and a half and six, I don't know that I had enough. <laughs> that, okay, no, I, I hear you. I hear you. And and that's how you how you describe the angels in your life, isn't it? Yes. This is this where 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 women who saw that you suddenly were alone just yeah. took you in their arms. And I it could is, not have survived without them. That's right. And it was beautiful how he explained it in the book, because there was obviously this relationship building between you who needed the help, but also the woman who now could focus on keeping this child safe and therefore giving giving like a symbiotic relationship where the two of us, two of you, were, were supporting each other to a degree. But isn't it terrible that I really don't remember them so well? Ugh. I don't remember my biological mother or the others. I know. There were so many things going on in such a short time that I was with each one of them until the last one that yeah. I don't remember them. Rina, please, how can you remember you were starved? Uh, your, your, your nutrition would have been absolutely atrocious. Your little mind, your little brain would have not had all the chances that that it needs like like a child hopefully nowadays has to actually build these memories you you were you were somehow surviving and this is and and this this question goes through your book so many times who am i why can't i remember these things and i i i felt your pain reading your book and but it is i wanted to when i read the book i wanted to to shout 
to to Israel. No, no, don't feel don't feel guilty because how could you have possibly laid down the memories in such a time? You, but I mean, it is somehow you went through these camps. You were lucky, as you describe it. You had the right angels looking after you. Um, it is how many? How long have you been in concentration camps? What was well, the, the war time started in nineteen thirty-nine? Correct. And it finished April fifteenth, nineteen forty-five. Yeah. So I guess that's six years. Okay, and that alone is is amazing, because the vast majority of stories don't end like that. There was so mess, so much death, and so much suffering. A million and a half Jewish children were killed for no other reason that they were Jewish children. Exactly. Many of them infants who never had a chance to do anything wrong. Exactly. You had the chance to somehow go to Sweden. You you were you left after after your last concentration camp was liberated. You write in your book that people said, "We are free. We are free." You remember the, that female voice shouting, "We are free," and you said, "I was too sick. I couldn't. I I couldn't move." But also, I had no idea what free meant. And right. The British came in mm -hmm. and I had typhus. Almost everybody had typhus. It's a very uh, contagious disease. And uh, the British came in and they told us that we were free and that they brought us food and medicine. And we could do whatever we want to do. Mm. Well, what do I want to do? First of all, I didn't understand English. Second of all, I couldn't get up. When you have typhus, you can't get up, you can't see. And they're all with dead bodies lying all around. And the British had a very hard time. The first thing they had to do was bury 10,000 unburied bodies that they found. Then they tried to feed people. And 14,000 people died after the war. 2,000, according to the British, because they gave them the wrong food. Mm. If you haven't eaten for such a long time, you can't accept a chocolate bar or, mm. or a sandwich that they gave you. And, um, and, and then they burned down all the barracks, the, the wooden barracks that were so infested with lice and fleas and, mm. and, and, and feces. I mean, there were no toilets and people just soiled themselves everywhere. So why did not know what free meant at all? You're absolutely right. And you were born 35, so we're now 45. So you're a 10-year-old young girl who is basically a deaf store. And yes. who, when we say surviving, we, we, I mean, you were really at, at a very limit there. But well, some you know, I did I didn't, excuse me, I did not know how sick I was, but when I got to Sweden, I was mm. put into a Swedish hospital mm. where I was supposed to be, um, uh, a, a, not supposed to be, but a, a Swedish Christian couple wanted to adopt me. And the people around me said that I was Jewish and I belonged in, in Palestine. But the person who wrote the book with me, Barbara Sofer, wrote to the hospital in Hasselholm in Sweden, and they sent me records. Can you believe it? I have a chart of my temperature <laughs> and I had typhus and diphtheria. Yeah. Those are two sicknesses that don't 
aren't around very much, certainly not in our kind of countries. And these are sicknesses that people would have died anywhere. Mm -hmm. And somehow or other, God meant for me to survive. And that is where you learned how to ice skate. Um, I did, I did. (laughs) Because again, here you are, you are a child that is now being nourished, that is giving attention, and that is learning how to to skate on, on the ice, something that you could do in Sweden quite easily there. And yes. I see that again as, as one of these, these, these things where finally you, you played catch up, you, you really went to, to finally live that youth that you missed. That was such a beautiful scene in your book. Okay. Doing research, I was told that in Pietrakov in Poland, children started skating when they were three and a half, because <laughs> there also it was. Now, I don't remember this, yeah. but when I was skating in Sweden and when I came to the United States and, and when I was married and I had children, I used to take my children skating and I was a better skater than they were on the ring. <laughs> oh, no, it's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. How long were you in Sweden? How long was your recovery, actually? That's quite a, um, quite some time, wasn't it? Um, maybe a year. You know, mm. I don't know exactly. I could mm. I could count it. I think I left in March of um, of forty six. The war ended forty five. So about a, close to a year. Mm. Mm. Sweden was very good to us. We came in there, and and I was in a DP camp, which they displaced persons camp, which I called an alien camp, and they fed us all kinds of puddings to um, get us back to health. And to many people were really skeletons, and they gave us medicines and 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 hope. And um, unfortunately, Sweden is very anti-Semitic now, that very anti-Israel now, but at that time they were wonderful. They had not been fighting with the Germans, so they were neutral and they were able to take in 6,000 mm. citizens of Nazi German concentration camps, and I was one of them. Mm. Did you, when you then moved with your new family to the United States, did you experience anti-Semitism when you arrived there? No. No, I did not. The people were absolutely wonderful to me. Mm. We were called the Greeners, which is green, you know, like new, not experienced. Oh, I see. Right. And the children started teaching me English, you know, say books, say dog, say cat, say hello. Yeah. Every day I learned a different word. And there was a man who had a store on Main Street. Mm. He sold carriages and he found a dog carriage and mm. somebody gave me a doll. And at the age of almost 10, I started playing with the doll. I don't remember having a doll before. I probably did, but I don't remember. Mm. So I did not experience anti-Semitism at that time. Oh. However, um, several months later when I was adopted by the, my American family and I went to school and I did not know how to speak English well and I certainly did not know the letters Uh, I didn't know how to read. I didn't know math. And I was put into a third grade because I was too old to be put into the first grade. And by this time, I was already healthy. There was a Miss Dutney who was not very nice to me. She gave a spelling test. And I was looking around to see what everybody was doing. And uh, she decided I was copying. (laughs) Of course, she took me to the principal. And the principal realized that I was too dumb 
to copy. You can't copy somebody's spelling test if you don't know the letters. And he took me out and put me into the next grade. The next teacher didn't know what to do with me. So my adopted parents who had a trial and error, but they were very, very good about it. They took me out of the public school and put me into a private small school and got me tutors. And after a while, I learned the letters and I learned to do many other things that children did. And I became a child again. Beautiful, beautiful. There was at least finally some protection there. Although it is, the, the reason I'm asking is that America was actually very anti-Semitic in the Second World War. On purpose, they reduced the quotas for Jewish people to emigrate. Uh, they were at some stage 25,000 a year. They reduced it by 15,000. So on purpose, despite knowing what was happening in uh, in Europe. So therefore, it is interesting to see nowadays Hollywood's description of all this, this beautiful heroism of soldiers, etc. When the reality was probably a little bit different um, on on the streets and in the behind the white picket fans. And the same applies. Yes. For, the same applies for the UK. The same applies for many other countries where latent anti-Semitism has been ripe for for decades and centuries. You're right, but in 1946, a movie came out. I just saw it recently. I belong to a film club called Gentleman's Agreement. And there a man, Gregory Peck was the actor, uh, decided to write about anti-Semitism. And he's, what, what are you going to write about? It's been written about so many, many times. And he got this idea that he would become a Jew. And he... And he, um, he had a little boy, his wife had died, and he told his little boy, now we're going to say we're Jews and no one is going to know a secret. And he found out how difficult it was for Jews. For instance, he went to um, a hotel and his name, his name was uh, Green, Bob Green, and they said, welcome, and they have a room. And then when he signed in, he signed Phil Greenfield. And they said, Oh, that was a Jewish name. We're sorry, but there are no rooms left at all. And he said, but you just told me that there were rooms there. And he said, well, we made a mistake. There are no rooms at all. He was trying to argue with them. And the bellhop came and took his suitcase and burned it outside. And there were people in the lobby there. Nobody noticed what they were doing as soon as he became a Jew. And many of the other incidents in that movie was very well received. Mm. And it showed the anti the latent anti-Semitism that you said. Mm. I personally, as a child, did not feel it. I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased to hear that because it is it's hard enough. You have suffered through a darkness in your very early years that luckily you cannot recall too much of it. There are these flashes of memories that you describe. Uh, but ultimately, you, you, you were, it was a blessing and a curse, because obviously you want to remember the face of your mum. You want to remember those, those people that were close to you. At the same token, to actually remember every single thing that you truly experienced in those six years in the concentration camp. I mean, this is, this is your mind helping you to not, not see that. Wow. But then you essentially, you became a teenager. You became an American teenager. And 
everything included with that. Um, tell us a bit about that time, because you wanted to move on, weren't you? Oh, absolutely, and, and try to make up for all the time that I didn't have. Um, I came into this new school, and it was a small school, and I remember the first time seeing somebody climbing the monkey bars, and I didn't know how to do that, but I said, I'm going to pretend to do it, and I'm not going to think about fall, death or falling. I'm just going to do it, and I did. And then I, when I got into high school, I went to a public high school, and um, I... Instead of being the, 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 the stupidest, the dumbest kid in class, I made up for it. And my parents helped me a great deal. And I started playing the piano and the cello and I was in the band and I went to football games and we never, ever talked about the Holocaust. Mm. I was also very much ashamed to tell anybody that I was adopted because the only children that were adopted at that time were children who were taken away from their mothers because they were drunk or because they had done something else. Otherwise, mothers wouldn't give away their children for adoption or be taken away. I didn't want anybody to know that I was adopted. I didn't want anybody to know that I was different. I didn't want anybody to know that I was an only child. I never told anybody that I had had two brothers and a different mother and father. And I just was able to get away with all of it. And I just never talked about it. I couldn't. Did you have at that time a rebellious streak or did you actually have, uh, what was, was there a role for religion in your life at that yes. state in yes. time? I, I don't remember being rebellious. I became very independent. Maybe that's a better right. word for it. But um, um, religion, I, 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 um, I was adopted by a family who were conservative Jews Then later on, I married a man who was more orthodox, so I became more. But conservative Jews, they were very, very involved with, with Israel. And at that, at first, it was only Palestine. Israel wasn't born in 48. And we often think of Israel had been, had been established three years earlier, in 19, 10 years earlier, 1938 instead of 1948. And after the war, there was no place for Jews to go. And Jews in 45, 46, 47, until 48, when they did try to go to Palestine before Israel, they were taken to Cyprus and to Athlete and to camps. They weren't concentration camps, but they still were not free. I was in the United States. I could do, I could go, as you said, skating, even roller skating became something and riding a bicycle and traveling and, and having parties. I loved having parties. And I, I really felt that I wanted to live life to its fullest. And thank God I had the opportunity to do that. My parents were very easygoing with me. They even let me go on a trip when I was 18 on a bicycle trip through Europe. On a bicycle trip where I cycled through 10 countries through Europe. And looking back at it, at that time, I guess it wasn't dangerous for a young woman to go on her own. I don't think that I would let my children do that now. <laughs> Times have changed. That is true. Yeah. But then at the same token, at the same token, you said when you were 18, was the, did I get the time right? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. 35, um, that is uh, 35, 45, 55, 53. This is only just eight years after the formal end 
of the Second World War. For those of you out there who are still in the in the dream world that suddenly the 8th of May happened, everyone put their rifles down and, and now said, yes, now we're going to start a new life. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Uh, the Second World War didn't stop at the 8th of May. The Second World War continued in many countries, uh, pretty much into the end of the 40s, even the start of the 50s, because civil wars at that time ripped communities apart. There's a beautiful book called uh, The Savage Continent, which highlights the aftermath of the Second World War in Greece, in, uh, in, in every country of Europe. And everywhere there was a civil war, wherever you looked, and it was, these were brutal times. So you were just at the end of that period of civil unrest. At the same token, there was now this, this, this period of rejuvenation, of regeneration, of people wanting to move forward and building, rebuilding their countries. So it would have been a very, it would have been a very vibrant and a very thirsty society or societies through which you traveled. Um, how were you embraced there? What was your, what was your feeling when you went through these countries? I think my life mate probably was different as a child and someone who was just brought into an American. I didn't have many, I didn't have any friends who were Holocaust survivors. Yeah. However, there were communities where Holocaust survivors tended to stick together. I didn't. My, my parents were not Holocaust survivors and I came into their crowd. But many people found it very difficult to find jobs. First of all, they had to go to night school to, exactly. to learn English. They, they didn't know English. And then many people would not hire them. And then people who were religious were told, you either come into work on Saturday or don't bother coming to work on Monday. Yeah. And there were many people who gave up religion and others who stayed with it and just went from job to job yeah. until they found themselves. But many years later, if, if you think about the year now, 2021, um, the head of Pfizer was a son of a Holocaust survivors from Greece. And, and there were many, many Holocaust survivors who were very, very successful. And we know of, of many of them. And they built up beautiful um, businesses, beautiful homes, did a lot of contributing to so many different causes. And living in Israel, you feel it. So I was different. I was different because I was a child. I was different because I lived in an American community. I was different because my parents had money and I had a house, whereas refugees who came from, from Europe had absolutely nothing. And they didn't have families. And they tried to make their neighbors, the other people who came in on ships, to, to the United States. People who came to, to Israel after 48, the government gave them a room, which was their apartment, and they shared it. And, and um, they also had to start from nothing. And it was a very poor country, and it was a very small country. Thank God Israel has now become high-tech in the world, and they have come from ashes, really, to, to being somebody. And how beautiful is that? Oh, so here you were, I mean, you came back from, from your trip and you, when did you meet your husband? 
Oh, that's, that's, I'm so glad you asked that. I was married for almost 60 years to the most wonderful person. And every, he was a lawyer and he was a rabbi. And um, there's a holiday called Sukkot, where the Jews um, remembered being in the, in the desert after leaving Egypt, and they made booths. And uh, Jewish people celebrate that holiday. It's called Sukkot. And they build these little booths, which are temporary homes for eight days. And I was, um, I was already 20, 21, 22. And um, many of us just went from one sukkah, one booth to the other, taking a drink and taking some cake and meeting other people. Mm-hmm. And in one of those places, I met my husband. And he was a shy, uh, uh, not very outgoing man. And um, I was just the other way. I was very outgoing and I loved people and I, I just thrived being around crowds. And I, I don't even remember meeting him there, but he asked our host for my number. And our host said, well, you know, she's very independent and I don't know if, you know, the two of you. So anyway, he, he got my number, he called me <laughs> and I went out with him and he was not quiet and he was not all the things that they... Three of my friends said, Rena, he's not for you. He's too religious. Mm. He's too much of a bookworm. And uh, he's not going to go dancing and, and <laughs> as you say, skating and, and bicycling and things like that with you. Well, they were wrong. They were wrong. Um, I went to his life, side life. He went to my kind of life. And we really had a wonderful life. So that was a wonderful meeting on Sukkot in <laughs> 1958. How beautiful. 58 is 58 is three, how many years after the war? 45, 55? Yeah. Yeah. Not, not yeah. Many, 13 years, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's beautiful because in your book, you actually, you you go over the many prejudices and and perceptions that that people have about Holocaust survivors. And you're, that is what your book is so outstanding and what I found so great reading it. Uh, it is literally, for me, it was a page turner because you spontaneously answered so many questions that I had and that I had on maybe address some misconceptions that I had by your own experiences and then by by telling about the studies. You know, you could you could say, oh, all Holocaust survivors, they must be very dire and very, very sad. And you said, well, actually, no, we, we have seen the sadness. We want the light. We want to live. We want to be out there. And, and, and your book goes through these kind of things. Are Holocaust survivors more frugal? Are they more religious? Are they, you know, it is. Give us some examples where you you really, um, I mean, did you get surprises when you actually oh, researched I, I- it yourself? I'm very surprised to hear you because um, I haven't had people, um, you, you know, speak about this or, or make these kinds of moves. Um, so I really don't know how other people react to my book that way. They think about different things that you've mentioned. But I once had a group here and they came to learn about Israel and I was the token Israeli. We don't have a typical Israel home. We have a beautiful apartment with furniture that we bought from the United States. And our home was all green, emerald green. And I had green carpeting and a green couch and green and white chairs and a lot of pictures around. And I was talking to this group and never telling them I was Holocaust survivor, talking about Israel. And at the end, um, this was what we had planned on, what the government 
government agencies who, who sent these people to us. At the end, I said, what do you think a Holocaust survivor's home would look like? And they said exactly the opposite of yours. It would be gray and dark and no pictures and very sad. And yours is full of life and lots of pictures. And, and you can see that there's a piano and there's a cello mm. and there's a yeah, television and all that. And um, I said, well, I'm a Holocaust survivor. It was very hard for them to believe it mm. because... I, I mean, even my English is American English because I never spoke any language well. <laughs> as far as being frugal, I don't think that you can put Holocaust survivors into one compartment. I think there are people who are frugal and need to be frugal because they have money and the others who became very, very wealthy. Mm. And the same thing with uh, being religious. There are people who stay religious and there are people who completely lost mm. their faith in God. I have two friends who were with me in Bergen-Belsen and in Sweden, and they're now living in Israel. Uh, one of them is in Haifa, and when I visited her, she does not believe in God at all, hmm. whereas I believe very strongly. She has never gone to a synagogue, and she had made a pact with God that if he would find her father, she would believe in him. And if he would not find her father, she didn't want to have anything to do with him. And she never found her father. Um, the other woman is even more of a problem to me. Her name is Helena, and she's in a beautiful old age home. She's been there for a long time, never married. And she says, how could you possibly want to bring in children to such, such a terrible world? Whereas I feel just the opposite. I want to bring in as many as many to replenish uh, I don't think I do it for that reason, and I don't know that I have a choice, but I have four children, and when I wrote the book, I had 22 grandchildren. That's still the same, but at that time, I had 22 great-grandchildren, and as of this week, I have 36 great-grandchildren <laughs> with three more on the way, so I am very different from her, and I think you can save survivors. You can't put them into one, mm. one up. They're all different. How beautiful is that? And that is that is uh, such an important thing. Let's actually demystify, demystify the the kind of funny, funny thoughts, funny beliefs out there of people when they think about Holocaust, when they think about it. Um, are, there this, any, are there any Holocaust surviving in New Zealand? I do not know. I do well, honestly. Australia don't know. has many. Australia has many, many. Right. Um, I have not been honored to meet any yet. Um, that hopefully will change. But uh, with all due respect, the the Holocaust finished 1945, and it is since then a long time. So regrettably, life has got has to stop for most of us, um, actually for all of us, for that matter. And there are, there are probably not so many people left. And therefore it is so. Anti-Semitism is, is terrible now. It's rampant. Yeah. And when you think Australia, which is near you, there's so many incidents there. I was invited um, to speak in South Africa. Yeah. And then they put up a new museum. But they're, they're experiencing a lot of uh, anti-Semitism, as well as the United States and all mm. of Europe, including Sweden, which have been so good to us. May I ask, why do you think that is? I really don't know the answer. I think a lot of it is just ignorance and just not knowing the facts. Yeah. Um, I was once um, in Europe with my husband. We did a lot of traveling 
and we went to see uh, we went to St. Peter's in Church in the Vatican. And uh, there's a statue of Moses that Michelangelo made, and it has horns. And the people went, you, you go to see this Michelangelo, it's a beautiful, Pieta, he has the Pieta there, and he has all these, Michelangelo's one of the greatest artists around. And they looked at the man here. I was, I was in Europe, and we went some, I went on my bicycle trip, um, the, most of the people were not Jewish. And they asked me, we became, could they feel my hair, my head? Because they wanted to know about the horns the Jews had. And uh, there are no horns, but they did not know that. But Michelangelo made a sculpture with horns. Well, the reason he did is because the word carnaim, which is horns, is also rays of light. So he, in the Bible, it said there were rays of light going down on Moses, and it was translated as um, horns. So people thought that Jews have horns. People thought Jews smelled like Satan. And if you go into Yad Vashem, where I used to guide and now I speak, there's all these different things showing you. Um, Hitler in, in 1933, before the war, way before, he would look at the eye color uh, or the, the size of the nose. And he had all these different things talking about anti-Semitism, and those were the caricatures that were spread. And I think that besides the Holocaust, it is so important to show normal people or people similar to yours that you can't tell that one looks different. So there are many different um, misconceptions. Oh, so true. And uh, for those of you who who get infused and want to know more, Yad Vashem has got the most beautiful online course on anti-Semitism. I can highly recommend it, which goes through the, the history of anti-Semitism from the many, many, many centuries ago with the Brochromes uh, to the Holocaust and to nowadays to the issues uh, to actually a very good segment on the difference between anti-Semitism and disagreeing with the, the 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 conduct of the state of Israel, these are very two very distinct di differences there. So, if you wanted to to learn more about anti-Semitism, this is the place to go. Yad Vashem is absolutely beautiful, and this course is online. Uh, please do it. This is uh, it has been an eye opener for me in the past, and Yad Vashem also did this year a a virtual tour. Uh, which I took part in. So it is, again, if you get the chance to do that, please, guys, go out there and 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 immerse yourself in this beautiful culture, which is one, one rich, gorgeous culture that is out there and needs to be out there. It's just as right or as wrong as an American culture or a French culture or whatever. I don't care for crying out loud. Guess what? We all want to sing. We all want to dance. We want to feel love. We want to feel happiness. We hate pain. That's all of us for crying out loud. So, ah, no, honestly. No, Anti-Semitism is, is, it's a real sickness. It's a real plague. And if you come here, you can, uh, you can see when I went to South Africa, I was on a very, uh, um, anti-Semitic radio program and I was told it would be and they would ask me about it, uh, Israel being an apartheid state and um, 
I had to think very quickly, you know, when people attack you with these different things. Mm-hmm. But if you go into our Knesset, our parliament, we have Arab um, members of, of, of the Knesset, mm-hmm. even in the coalition now. And if you go into the Supreme Court, into the other courts, there are Arab Muslim uh, lawyers and there are Muslim good doctors. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the, you, you just have to look and see if you want to. And if you go into the stores, there's a beautiful Mamila Mall that many, many Arabs from all over come and they're allowed to come and they, they're welcome to come because they bring a lot of money and the mm. storekeepers are very happy to have them. But people who come here don't know this and 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 everybody should be invited to come mm. and, and to see for themselves mm. that we are trying very hard to be open and welcoming. And, and, and you know what? There's no reason for war. There's enough water. There's no food. There's enough land. There's enough of everything if we could just find peace with each other. So true. I could not say it. Uh, please. And that from from a woman like you who has lived through so many changes in your life and in so many settings. What What fascinates me is that you had very few memories from from your younger years. You then lived this full and rich life uh, in the United States. Uh, you founded your own family. You lived a happy life. But at some stage, you started to ask questions. And I think that is that is something that, that many people I've got on my show um, equally uh, find. They, they, they find the intergenerational trauma they they have to to come to terms with what which was happened in the past. What that did you're, start you're your asking, journey? Well, you're so right. Um, I ask myself very often, how did I survive, and why did I survive, and not my mother and my father and my brothers and six million hmm. other. Jews who were killed and millions of other people besides Jews who were killed in uh, in World War Two, and I I I really don't know many of the of the answers. All I know, and I don't believe myself, except now I have proof. In 1989, I went back to Poland and I found my birth certificate. And I was so excited because I found my birth certificate and I found my brother's marriage license. So now I knew I had a mother and a father and they were married and they were married by a famous rabbi. And I found my house and the Polish woman living there remembered my father. And I found the factory that I worked in pretending to be a boy. So all these things that I wasn't sure that I remembered, I thought I did, and I thought I remembered my first name, and I thought I remembered my brothers. I found out that my memory was still okay. And, and I have proof of all, including, as I told you, that I was in the hospital. I certainly wouldn't know a temperature chart or, or what sicknesses I had, but this, the, the Israeli doctors translated the whole document for me. So I ask many of these questions, and I don't know why I was saved and not the, all the others. My question, though, is why did you start searching? What made started, you... What made you okay change? In 1981, there was a gathering of Holocaust survivors in Israel. Uh, 
And my children, I had four children at that time. The eldest uh, was 20, uh, 20, 21, and, and 18, 16, uh, 13. My, my, grand, my son was going to be having a bar mitzvah. They said, you know what? You're like an ostrich. You put your head in the sand and you might believe nothing <laughs> happened. Why don't we go? Maybe we'll find some other person in your family that survived. Because I didn't know if anybody survived. And, you know, my husband and I agreed and we went. And um, I started looking. We put up little pieces of paper looking for anybody know somebody. Fredja Lichtenstein was my name. Then I had six different names. I was a boy. I was a girl. I had six mothers. It's amazing that I know who I am. But we put up little signs looking for people from Pietrakov. And if anybody knew my family, nobody knew my family. And I didn't recognize any of those people. So I wrote to a place called Arlson, which is an international tracing bureau. Now you can get a lot of that information online or at Yad Vashem or in the Washington Museum on the Simon Wiesenthal Center in California. But at that time, in 1981, there was this Arlson and I wrote to them and they wrote back to me. Yes, my name was Frederick Lichtenstein. Yes, my mother's name was Sarah Messer Lichtenstein and my father's name. And I had the two brothers and I was in the ghetto and I was in different camps and I was in Bergen-Belsen. I was in Sweden, child adopted in America, case closed. So all the things that I doubted, now I had proof of, except that I never found the birth certificate and I still used Fanny. That was the name of the girl who I had. In 1984, we made Aliyah, we moved to Israel with our family, and I started volunteering in Yad Vashem. Mm -hmm. And there, all of a sudden, more and more stories came out. And in 1989, Yad Vashem had a trip that I went to, and I actually found all the documents that I was looking for, which was pretty amazing. Can you imagine? In 89, they still had my birth certificate from December 35. <laughs> but they found it, and, um, and 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 the woman was very good about finding it because she said, give me your American passport and I'll look for it. I said, my American passport, the name is different, the birthday is different, the mother's name is different, the country is different. Well, what are you looking for? Nothing in the passport matches you. And my, my um, interpreter, the person I hired, because I don't speak Polish. I don't know if I ever spoke Polish, Yiddish was the, the language in the camps. And then I started speaking American English and that's what my native language is now, English. So that's how I started looking. And then when I wrote my book, uh, Barbara helped me remember many things. Mm -hmm. And then she took me to a psychologist mm -hmm. uh, because I said, I don't remember this and I don't remember that. And she took me in thinking that the psychologist could help me um, remember more. And after I spoke with the psychologist and told her, she says, Rena, you remember enough. And what you don't remember, you don't have to. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to go into hypnosis or bring up things that your mind is trying not to remember because you're trying to live a happy, normal life. Which is so beautiful. Such a beautiful insight. So this, this beautiful woman gave you actually the permission to put some of the search at rest. At the same token, 
the search was beautiful for you because you when you when they found your birth certificate in your book you describe doing that spontaneous dance and being being so yes <laughs> see i'm alive i'm alive <laughs> because exactly. you had no proof you had you had nothing apart from memories that at times you didn't even trust when, when i came back to the bus which was filled with people working in Yad Vashem, and I showed them my birth certificate, they started applauding and crying. And they, <laughs> they've, gone through, they've gone through every, I mean, they've seen this and they've heard this, yeah. but to see one of their own people actually finding out that, that they were born, that they were alive, it, it just was very moving. It was quite a moment in my life. Oh, beautiful. Not, not many people can have that, because most people know they were born. I just didn't know. <laughs> oh, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> and then, then you came full circle. You were now working with Yad Vashem. You were going out there to to actually speak. And that really started your journey of of trying to touch as many souls out there and and opening your story up so that others do not forget. Yeah. Uh, actually, most survivors did not want to speak about their experiences until after the Eichmann trial. Mm. After the Eichmann trial, when people came and they realized how important and they said, that happened to me and that happened to this one and that happened to that mm. one, more and more stories. And then people realized, as mm. you started off by saying that a lot of people say there's Holocaust denial, that it mm. never happened. And then you had these people who were there saying, I was there. And um, and I even have a number of people in Auschwitz yeah. had numbers to prove it, but so many other people had memories yeah. and had sicknesses and, and uh, that. One day I was giving a tour to Holocaust survivors. And when I said I was in Petrikov and in the Hortensia glass factory, he said, I remember a, a, a boy there, a little boy working as um, my job was to deliver water in a glass factory, mm. you need water for the mm. glass. Mm. And I'm not sure I was the only boy there. I was maybe I was the only boy girl there. But uh, um, uh, when he said that, it also brought things back. Mm. And when you talk to people, they 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 remind you of their stories. Mm. And then people just are willing to come out. People want to come out and talk about mm. it. It's mm. been hidden for a long time. I didn't realize how important the Eichmann trial was. For those of you who are not aware, Adolf Eichmann was the, the architect of the Holocaust, really. A nasty piece of work who, who was highly efficient, unfortunately, and who then went through the red lines to South America and lived in Argentine, Argentine, Argentina. Um, until, and a pseudonym. Indeed, until um, the Mossad basically sent a a squad out to specifically capture him, get him out of uh, Buenos Aires and get him back for trial. And that was 1962. So just to put it all into perspective, what we're talking about. And that was probably the, the original Me Too movement, um, right. where finally actually people were daring to speak up because uh, there must be such a such an such an a a, a a roller coaster of emotions in people who kept that hidden for such a long time. One of the men, Katsetnik uh, was his name, that was the number, he had his uniform. And when he took it out and he saw it, he actually fainted. 
It was such a moving kind of thing. And that trial is completely um, on film now. Mm. Certainly it's been postponed. He was the only person who was put to death in Israel. Mm. There was another uh, man, Damianouk, but they couldn't find absolute 100% proof and he was let go. But he um, he wasn't so welcomed in the United States also, mm. but he mm. died natural death in his 90s. Mm. The only one who was executed was Eichmann mm. in our country. That I was about to say, uh, because in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, there were Avengers, there were death squads, there were there were Jewish people who took the uh, the law into their own hands. And not that many, I don't yeah. know, but the Nuremberg trials yeah. tried the 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 most uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, upper echelon but, people. But Rina, let's let's be quiet. The Nuremberg trials were beautiful to actually document it and and go after the big guys up there. But you well, have how to can you hold... deny it? Oh, how absolutely. can you deny it? If the Nuremberg trials don't deny it, yeah. and this happens so many uh, years, true, true. Deny... That's very true. But my 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 the, the point that I want to make is that there were so many other Nazis who were very active in their persecution of the Jews, who then quietly either slipped away um, through the red lines or i.e. through through the Vatican uh, led paths that led to South America or through uh, Operation Paperclip where many Nazis ended up in the United States or the UK or France where basically were, were just taken in because they had knowledge. Um, so it doesn't matter what you did in the Second World War or in the concentration camp because you had the knowledge that we need. Therefore, you're a good boy now in the United States. All these kind of things. And that is that is something that that is actually pissing me off, actually pissing me royally off, because here were men and women who have done atrocious things, really, truly bad psychopaths, sociopaths, nutjobs. And when Israel wanted to find these people, suddenly... Everyone else out there said, no, 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 we want to move on. So that is, no, no, that bit of Holocaust, those six million Jews, who cares? So and that was sort of from 1950 onwards, Israel had very little chance of getting, getting persecutions done, was it not? This must have been yeah. such a frustrating thing. Did you, did you follow that at that time? Was I, I did, but I once had a group of Armenian people yeah. And they, the Armenian genocide has been forgotten. And you can't allow these things to be forgotten. Correct. Uh, but but it wasn't just Germany. Yeah. There were collaborators in many of the other countries. And you started off by talking about Poland. Absolutely. And after the war, there was a city called Kelsk. And when the Jews came back to Kelsk, 26 of them were killed mm. because they came back. Correct. And, uh, and, and there's a book called Neighbors about showing how many Polish people uh, were very much ready to kill Jews now. Mm -hmm. And the head of Yad Vashem in Poland, who happened to have come from my hometown, when he came, he was practically murdered, he and his friend, and they had to run away. And many people said, how did you manage to get out of the camps? Mm -hmm. Why didn't they finish you off? But go back to the gas chambers. Mm -hmm. So there, there, there are, and there still are. But I think that when we talk about it, and it's 
it's it's something that I live with. You have to remember the bad, but you also have to remember the good. Absolutely. And as many people as there were who were terrible, 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 mm. you can't even find enough words to say how atrocious you get that Dr. Mengele, mm. who performed experiments on twins and mm. on, uh, mm. on um, uh, cancer patients mm. and would put cancer into them, and mm. did t- terrible, terrible things. But there were righteous amongst the nations who tried to help people. So there's tell us, the, tell us about, the other. Yeah. Te- please tell us about the righteous of the nations. Well, I, I did not know. I did not know them, but there were people who were in hiding. Mm. And I have been on panels with people who were in hiding, my Christians, who were underground, let's say, for three years. Mm. And the man or woman, uh, not even an educated person, just maybe a farmer, mm. very simple people who felt that justice had to be done or mm. they couldn't see people just being killed and they would bring mm. down a little food or take out their waste because there was no toilet there. Mm. And there were people who, uh, there were convents and there were nunneries who took children in. Mm. Many of those children are still there Mm. who never found out that they were Jewish. Mm. Although the Israeli state, after Israel was, um, became a state, they sent people trying to get Jewish children out of convents and nunneries and bring them to Israel. Mm. Some of those children didn't want to come because they didn't know anything else. And then there was England that took in 10,000 children for the kinder transport there, there. So there were some good people. They were terrible, terrible, terrible people. So I think we have to remember both. And that is what, what I love at Yad Vashem, because you have got at the entrance of Yad Vashem, you have got uh, this this little plantation there where the trees are planted uh, for those 25,000 recognized righteous of the nations. Right. And this is such a and beautiful... And there are carob trees, that, carob trees that stay green all the time and they show you life. Mm. And when you go through the museum, when you come in, it's dark, but there's one place to look out and yeah. that is the righteous amongst the nations. And of course, we cannot forget the the Eichmanns and the Goebbels and the Hitlers, but um, mm. um, there are a lot of people coming up now. And, and, and you know what? The Jewish people in the United States did a great deal for the blacks, or they were called Negroes at that time. And now the black movement goes and they don't remember that. And we have to try to show them that Jews at one point was very, were very helpful to and Martin Luther mm. King adapted that. Mm. That's why I feel that we have to remember both sides. Which is so beautiful. And that is the work that needs to keep going. Because it is, it is like us here sitting together, and and God, hopefully one day we can sit together and and and, and enjoy literally us together and have a have a, a, a cup of coffee and and some some bread together. You're that very we- welcome. <laughs> I, 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 you're really I very very That's welcome. Not, I guess the I point- have a lot of cups and a lot of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> you're a woman to my heart. I like that. <laughs> um, the reality is that if we can all come together and find common ground, then it makes it so much more difficult for extremism to somehow raise its ugly head. If you if you can, but then again, who, who am I to say that? Because ultimately it was in many countries in the Second World War or in the lead up to it, it was the neighbors that have denounced uh, the Jews. It was, yes. it was essentially... 
it was the people that you knew, that, that you called friends, that you called co-workers, etc., who were essentially then actually causing the harm. And in actual fact, in many countries, in many towns, literally started hunting and killing Jews. This was not necessarily um, the Germans all the time. On the contrary, on the contrary, it was the neighbors and friends, so-called. And you think, what the hell? But then you go to Yugoslavia in the Yugoslavian civil war in the 90s, 80s, 90s. You've had exactly the same thing. So it is. Huh. But then again, I don't want to think like that. I, I, no, but I, you're absolutely right. You, you're absolutely right. There are there are terrible people in this world, and there are good people in this world. Yeah. And we have to try to for the people who would like to have peace to try to win over there. And and uh, um, listen, they're, they're working on climate control. We have to work on anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. and we have to work on on many other. Um, uh, uh, when, when the Ethiopians came here to, mm. to Israel, yeah. I think the year was in the, the mid-80s. Mm. Um, I had never seen people like that. Now I had seen dead bodies and I said, and I got used to that. And I was able to look at it because it was part of my everyday life. But when the Ethiopians came without, they had no shoes. They were wearing um, from, from rubber tires things. They did not know how to use a toothbrush. They did not know how to use a toilet. Some of the people in the Omeya, but the, many of the people there, and you look at them now, 20 and 30 years later, and they're part of our civilization, mm -hmm. including even members of Knesset. Uh, our, our minister of tourism is, a, um, is a, a, a little girl who came over and became somebody in Israel. So there's hope for everybody, and that's what we have to do is hope. Well, indeed, and work together. And, and work together, absolutely. work together. No, we cannot allow anyone to forget the Holocaust. And may I ask, I use the word Holocaust naturally because that was what we used in Germany. What about Shoah? What is, uh, is there, which word do you use? It depending who I'm speaking to. I think people in New Zealand know the word Holocaust more. Shoah is a Hebrew word, yeah. and it's certainly accepted, but I don't know if any, everybody knows it, but I think everybody okay. knows the word Holocaust. When I went to South Africa, and I've mentioned that, yeah. and um, um, I'm an old lady, and they thought it would be easier for me to get through with a wheelchair, and my grandson was pushing me because my husband about that had gotten sick, and the people, no, he was running along and somebody else was pushing me. And um, the people said, oh, did you come to come to see the safari? And I said, no, I know, came to talk about the Holocaust. And they said, who is he? And they had no idea what I was talking about. And I said, did you ever hear of Hitler? And they said, who is he? Now, you could say that these people were pushers in the uh, airport and they're not so educated. Uh -huh. But it's painful to hear that somebody never heard the word Holocaust or Hitler. Yeah. And we have to get to speak to them. In Tennessee, you mentioned paper clips. There was a principal who tried to teach the children about the, the world. And how, they mentioned the word Holocaust. They said six million. And you, you can't imagine six million people. And she says, we'll have an experiment with paper clips. Let's count paper clips. And somebody brought in a package of 100. It was teeny. And then other people brought in and they had a thousand. It was just very little. And then they had a million. And then they finally had to get a room to put the paper clips into. And then they got a, um, 
a car, a cattle car from Germany to put all the paper clips in to see how many paper clips make up six million. How many people yeah. are six million? Wow. And it's very hard, but these children really changed in their thinking when they started talking about the paper clips, each representing a person. Wow. Wow. <laughs> You can look that up on the, on the web also, paper clips. <laughs> yeah, paper clips. Although what I was referring to is Operation Paperclip, which was the code name to bring Nazis into the United States uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. Um, so that is, uh, but wow, I did not know that story. But imagine the impact to see that. Six million. Yeah. Wow. How many are in your community? How many are in your town? Oh no! In the whole country, the whole country has five point five point two million or so. So, so think the exactly. whole country plus exactly. being annihilated. Exactly. No, that's a and very that's, good way of looking at it for mm. New Zealand. How I want to ask you if you could send a message back to your younger self after all this transformation, after all the journey that you have taken. And you you could send some some message back. What would you send back? Well, that's a difficult difficult one. But I think what I would like to do is to sort of say, you know, live life to its fullest. Mm. Live life and enjoy as much as you can. Mm. Have a family. Try to bring peace. Mm. Um, travel as much as you can. Have all the good things. Do all the things. Be kind to other people. Don't do, uh, it says in the Bible, don't do unto others that they wouldn't want you to do unto you. And if you think about that, but we have to, we have to love as much as we can, and we have to, um, we have to, we we just have to be the people they never had a chance to be. Indeed. And all the things that they didn't do, we try to do to us and to people around us. Yeah. So beautiful. And that is exactly what recovery is about after addiction. That is what recovery is about after mental health problems. And that is equally that the quintessential uh, message from from a woman like you who has gone through such a lot in her life. So there must be something about it that actually we all should bloody well listen and actually do something about it. Live our life to the fullest, which means to start looking after yourself and maybe by you being this beautiful person, your light starts to shine and shines onto others and, and others suddenly see, oh, this is, this is actually a really great person and I want to know more how she ticks in this case. And, 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 you know, the, all the work that you have done for Yad Vashem and all, all the work that you uh, hopefully will still keep doing, the, all the, the messages that you keep sharing, it's so beautiful because if we can just keep all going, imagine we just the two of us hopefully have touched one soul today and that soul maybe starts shining in their own little way and is, is shining the light to someone else who needs to see it, etc. Would that not be nice? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed this interview, but of course, we talked more about 
our thoughts and after the war and, and, and believing, but we really didn't talk about exactly what happened to people in the Holocaust, how they suffered and how they died and how they starved and how they were mangled and, and how they were treated worse than any animal in the world Absolutely. should have been treated. And I think you need to read some of the books or you've got lots of it. Alfred Hitchcock, who was a well-known man in, in Hollywood, mm. took pictures in Bergen-Belsen. And in 1946, they refused to have him show it because they were such atrocities that people mm. could not fathom it. But nowadays, all kinds of things are shown on television. <laughs> and uh, that should be shown. But it really is, if you see a documentary like that, you know, I had enough. And you feel like you're just going to throw up. You can't imagine that people could do that. And that's why we can't imagine that anti-Semitism and anti-people could go on mm. uh, and now, anti-racism. Mm. And that's what we have to try to erase and eradicate. I, I'm so grateful for your words there. And hopefully we can bring this interview out to, to as many people out there as, as we can, because you, you said it so eloquently. I will never find the right words there as you did. Rena, Rena, you're an amazing woman. Uh, you're doing an amazing work. You, you survived for a reason, and you made the most out of your life. And I think that is the beautiful transformation, the beautiful story in uh, that is that is going with you. And you guys out there, please buy Rena's book. It is absolutely oh, amazing to read. This is this is the this is the, uh, my book. It's oh, called The Daughter of Many Mothers. Yeah. And it does have the whole story uh, before, during, and after. And um, think you buy, it's on Amazon. Of course, it's in, uh, in Yad Vashem and in my home. So if you come to Israel, it's, um, <laughs> I can personally inscribe it to you, and I'd like to. And, and I'd like other people to know the story, read the book, and pass it on so mm. that other people will know it. Mm. There aren't enough people who know about the Holocaust Indeed. or Shoah, as you say. Mm. And... and Thank you for giving people the opportunity to find out more. Absolutely. Rena, thank you so much for your time. I know I've spent so much of your time already and your bottom must be going numb uh, from just <laughs> sitting there now. <laughs> you honored me for allowing me uh, this much of your time. Uh, thank you so thank much. You. Let's make this thank world you. a little bit better. You guys out there, look after yourself. Bye-bye.